Welcome to the Alaska Energy Dudes and Divas podcast, where Alaskans, lawmakers, and the media tune in to keep up with energy issues and legislation. Tune in to learn about Alaska's oil and gas and mining industries. Hear from oil, gas, mining, and energy experts, government officials, and lawmakers on developing Alaska's natural resources and energizing Alaska. Here's your host, Deborah Berlini. Hey there, Deborah Berlini here, coming to you from Anchorage, Alaska, where you can't make this stuff up. Thank you for tuning in to the Alaska Energy Dudes and Divas podcast, episode one. I hope you tune in weekly to learn about oil, gas, mining, energy, our natural resources, and the politics of Alaska. I will be talking with guests from all over the state who are leaders who are ready to move Alaska forward. Everyone should be tuning in and engaging with their family, friends, and neighbors about the important issues I will be bringing you weekly. You can find the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also find the podcast at www.alaskaenergydd.com, our Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest. Hey, Alaska Energy Dudes and Divas is everywhere. So anyway, without further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest, Kathy Forster. Sitting here with uh, Kathy Forster, the chair of the Alaska Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. I'm not the chair anymore. Hollis French is the chair. When did that occur? About a year, about a year or so ago. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So how is that going? Um, and you have, the chair has a four-year term, and at the end of that four years, somebody else is the chair. My four years was more than up, and so Hollis took over. So what is your background in, that led you here to the Alaska Oil and Gas Conservation Commission? I um, went to the University of Texas, got a mechanical engineering degree, went to work for Exxon, worked for them for two years, worked for ARCO for 20-some years, and some of that in Texas, most of it here in Alaska, and then I worked for Petrotechnical Resources of Alaska for a few years, and in 2005, the governor's office called and asked me if I wanted to come do this, and so I've been here at the Alaska Oil and Gas Conservation Commission since 2005. So, um, can you explain what the Oil and Gas Conservation Commission is? Because I didn't know you even existed until I was at a pipeline meeting in July of 2011 and you showed up and testified. Well, the, the Alaska Oil and Gas Conservation Commission is, um, was created by statute and we have a very simple set of, of missions. Our, our, we're charged to prevent hydrocarbon waste, to um, encourage greater hydrocarbon ultimate recovery, to protect correlative rights, in other words, not to let people take each other's resources, to protect fresh groundwaters from damage during oil and gas operations, and to protect human health and safety during oil and gas operations. So if there's like one of these big finds that happens and then it's it's verified, when does it, when does it come to the Real, uh, Alaska Oil and Gas Conservation Commission for consideration? Well, we actually have field inspectors, engineers, and geologists who oversee everything that the oil companies do that's under our purview. And so we will identify, or sometimes the operator will come to us and self-identify that they've done something wrong. And um, we'll do an investigation, we'll, do, we'll look at a number of factors. Did they do it intentionally? Did they benefit financially by doing it? Um, did they cause any damage to the environment? Do they hurt anybody? 
do we need to deter this behavior in other people? And you know, we look at the and oh, and what's their record of, of um, compliance with regulations? Have they been a bad actor for a long time? Or are they usually pretty good? So we look at all of those things to determine what to do. And sometimes there's a financial penalty. Sometimes there, it's as simple as us saying you need to institute these new steps in your processes to ensure this doesn't happen again. But um, Things generally don't come to us from another place. We, um, we are, we're the, generally the ones who find them through our robust field inspection program and the good oversight that our engineers and geologists provide here. Has the commission ever shut down a project or made that recommendation? Or We've never shut down a project. Um, before projects get started, if they require our approval, or if pieces of them require our approval, they come to us before they start the project. And if, if they don't get our approval, then they don't proceed. You know, for example, if you're, you know, in in building a North Slope gas line, if it, if we weren't to give an offtake allowable for that gas, the gas couldn't go anywhere. So they wouldn't even start the project without us saying yes, you can take this much gas off the North Slope. Um, but we have shut operations down. If an inspector is out on site and an operator is performing a, a well work operation and it's unsafe or it's in violation of other parts of our regulations and the operator is unable or unwilling to fix things immediately, we'll shut them down. Or if an operator is engaged in operations that we are generally uncomfortable, we'll shut them down. But we've never shut down a big project, we, but we shut down operations. Um, one of the things I appreciated that you and Representative uh, Sherry Smollett had brought to Alaskans' attention was the legacy wells. Could you explain what happened with those when and I, what the status is of the cleanup? Okay. When I got onto the commission in 2005, having spent a lot of my years in Texas and knowing how many abandoned, well not, not properly abandoned, but just left behind orphaned wells the state of Alaska, state of Texas has to deal with. And knowing that this agency is responsible for making sure operators plug their wells and clean up their messes, one of the first questions I asked my staff was, how bad is our situation here? And the answer I got was, well, there's a handful of wells where operators have gone bankrupt and left the state holding the bag for cleaning up. But there's really only one bad actor who has 136 wells that are left in a mess. With that no sounds one. like a lot. It is. For, for the state, when, when all the other operators combined have left you seven or eight, and there's one operator who's left you 136, yeah, that's a lot. But the operator that I'm talking about is the U.S. government. So, and those wells are operated or, or overseen by the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. So I made an appointment with the BLM director who is responsible for overseeing those wells. Went to visit with him and asked him what the BLM planned to do about those. And he basically said absolutely nothing. And um, he gave me this wink, wink, nod, nod. We're regulators just like you. You shouldn't hold us accountable to the same degree that you hold industry. What a ridiculous comment for him to make. So. Um, we had some more meetings with them, tried to get them to do things, and 
no, 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 we don't have a budget. Well, ask for money. That's how you get a budget. No, we're not going to ask for money, blah, blah, blah. So we started have, we, we, we said we'd have a hearing to um, determine what needed to be done. We had a hearing, and they flew in a BLM lawyer from D.C., and he basically said, you're not the boss of me. In other words, <laughs> prematurely, um, he said, federal, feds trump state. You can't, a state can't tell the feds what to do. So at that point, I said, you know, that they were probably right, and even though I can't make you do this, I can pants you in the court of public opinion. I can embarrass the heck out of you by telling your story to anyone who listen. So I started doing that, and Sharice Millett picked up on the story, and so she started sharing my enthusiasm for doing that. And one of the people she told it to was Lisa Murkowski, who then invited Sharice and me to come up to D.C. and tell the Senate Energy Committee about it. That resulted in an appropriation of $50 million to the Department of Interior and the Bureau of Land Management to get in and, and clean up the wells. And they also instructed the BLM to work closely with the AOGCC, my agency, to make sure that they were spending the money on the right wells. So that has started a multi-year process that's had its ups and downs, but um, I, we've gotten to the point where now there are fewer than 50 wells left with any concern, and the very worst wells, with two exceptions, have been cleaned up. Um, they, we, we worked together to prioritize which wells were the worst actors and which wells were in an area where there are many wells so that they could spend their money wisely. One of the big costs in going out to a remote location is the mobilization and demobilization, or mob and demob costs. So it costs you a lot to get on location and get off a location. So if you can get onto a location that only has one well, you're going to spend all that money cleaning up one well. But if you can get to a location that there are several wells, you can spend that MOB and DMOB money and, and plug a lot of wells with it. So we work together to identify the worst actors and the, and the clumps of actors and have kind of optimized that to clean up as many wells as we can. We also identified that some wells really weren't a hazard, and we just said, okay, that well, you drilled 100 hole, you never put cement into it, the mud's probably sloughed back over it, it's not something to worry about. We're not, we'll take that one off the list. So we're, we're down to fewer than 50 wells that we're, have any concern at all over, and they're not the bad actors, as I said, with two exceptions. The two worst wells, one that was leaking natural gas, the other that had the potential of leaking oil, the BLM and its contractors used a method to try to plug those wells that we did not um, approve and, in fact, told them that they were likely to get into the mess that they found themselves in if they tried to use those methods. Well, again, Fed's Trump state. So and in their infinite wisdom, they ignored us and, and used the, that method on both of these wells. Now both of those wells are um, in such a state that they're not properly plugged and the cost to to undo the mess that was made and try to get back in and fix it is astronomical. And in fact, they may not be able to. Have a nice day. They is that the Whistling Wells? The Whistling Well is one of them. How, that was the big one, right? That was one, that was one of the two big ones. The other big they one, had to screw that one up. They screwed both of them up nicely. But they, and it'll be our federal tax dollars that'll be going in to try to fix what they did. So one of the things that you testified to in that U.S. Senate Resources and Energy Committee was that they were blowout 
potential some of these? Was that one of them that helped? Um, well, the whistling well, the, the, the risk in these two wells, the whistling well was leaking natural gas. And it used to be doing it so loudly that people in, in a village 10 miles away could hear it, and that's where it got its name, the whistling well. But over time, it's depleted. All of that gas is now in the, in the atmosphere, and the resource is depleted. So it's just a slow whistle. But they did it. The first thing they did before they went in to try to plug the well was they found the leak in the wellhead. So they fixed it. It's not currently leaking. But should it develop another leak, it, it, could, it could leak again in the future because they did not do the work down hole to make sure that the well is secure. So the only thing protecting us from the well is, this, is a wellhead and a series of valves. And if any of those valves leak, then we'll have a whistling well again. The other well is... Um, Simpson, I think it's 26, and um, it had, it was completed as an oil well, and it had the capability of flowing to the surface. In fact, when they tried using this um, inadequate method on the well, they told us they had gotten it plugged, and when we had them go out to do a pressure test, the well started flowing oil on them. So it's, it's capable of leaking oil. And um, yeah, those those are the two that, that I'm still most concerned about. And I'm sure the people at BLM share my concern, if for no other reason than that, that I won't quit talking about it. Can they be fixed? You said they can. Oh. Um, they may be able to be fixed, but it won't be cheap. It's unsure. Okay, we're going to take a little break. The housing market in Alaska can change so quickly, it can be difficult to know when to act. That's why my good friend Margaret Nelson over at Denali Real Estate is who you need to call at 632-4594. Whether you are buying or selling, Margaret has the knowledge you need to make the right decision. Of course, she has 30 years experience in the market, but what's great about Margaret is whether you are a first-time homebuyer or flipping houses like Chip and Joanna Gaines, Margaret has the insight you want. Her specialties include residential, commercial, and business sales and acquisitions. Call Margaret for action, communication, and results. She's highly recommended in Anchorage. For peak service, give Margaret Nelson at Denali Real Estate a call at 632-4594. Call her today. Okay, we're back with uh, Kathy Forrester with the Alaska Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. I listened to your testimony this session, and I forget which committee it was. I think it might have been House Finance. Did you speak to us? It was probably Senate Resource. Senate? Or Senate Energy. Senate Energy. Is it, is it Energy or Resources? I guess Resources. Um, you had spoke about some of the issues regarding bankrupt companies and leaving messes. So what I was talking about is a couple of initiatives that we've taken on here at the AOGCC to make sure that Alaska doesn't grow into the problems that bother Texas, Oklahoma, California, New Mexico, so the states that have been producing oil and gas a lot longer than us and have had a lot of mom-and-pop companies come in and um, leave, you know, drill a well, go bankrupt, and leave the mess for the state to clean up. You know, we've, until 10 or so years ago, we've, we've had the luxury of mainly having big guys, the Exxons, the BPs, the Conocos the Unicals, um, and those companies tend to, to be responsible, and if they, if they, if, if they, even if they tried not to, you could find them and make them, you know. So with companies like that, you're not at, at as big of a risk of having a lot of 
um, orphan wells at the end of the life of the field. The companies will come in and clean up their mess when they're done. But um, our legislature has incentivized little operators to come in. We've gotten a, a whole slew of little operators coming in. And um, the big companies are starting to sell their things to little companies. And as you move from those big mega companies down in, into the smaller and smaller, the risk to the state of being left holding the bag for cleaning up their messes when they're done increases. So we have taken on a couple of initiatives to try to head that off at the pass. First, we're working on increasing the bonding. Right now, companies have to give a bond that is held in our name that we can use towards cleaning up the, the wells. But the bond is only $200,000. It's $100,000 for the first well and $200,000 for everything else the company does. Our, 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 our statutes and regs allow us to do more, to ask for more, but we never have in the past. So we're in the process of studying what's an appropriate bond. Because, you know, Prudhoe Bay, the entire plugging and abandonment liability for Prudhoe Bay is, is assured with a $200,000 bond. You can't even pay the engineering consulting firm to do the study on how much it would cost to do the plugging for $200,000. So it's ridiculous. So we're working on a process to um, get closer to adequate bonds in all these fields. So that's one thing. Another thing that we have done is we have started an annual review with each operator of all of their idle wells. Each, every year each operator comes in and goes through with, with our engineers and geologists each and every one of their idle wells with an eye to does it have mechanical integrity, does it have future utility? And if the answer to those questions is no, if, you know, in that order of importance, um, then we put them on a schedule to make the operator plug them. The easy thing to do would be to say, okay, any well that's been idle for over a year, you got to plug. But that, had the AOGCC taken that approach 25 years ago, then when, as coil tubing, drilling, and sidetracking, and multilateral technologies developed, we wouldn't have had any of those idle wells available to use to put that technology to work, technology to, work to get the increased reserves that we're getting at, at Bruto Bay and Park from, from using those technologies. So we have to be careful in deciding that it's okay to plug, it's time to plug a well. We want to make sure there is no future utility, there's no technology that's, that's looming that's going to make something happen for that well that we can use it. And the well has good mechanical integrity so that it can be used. If a well's got bad mechanical integrity, you're not going to use it for anything. Just get rid of it. You know, it so every year each operator comes in and we set a schedule of what wells they're going to plug the following year based on that, those criteria. So if a, a project or that well is not economic? These are, these are wells that are shut in. But they're, the, they're, not there's, they're not economical to produce. But let's say there's some viscous oil or something down there and then it becomes economic. Well, that's why we have to be careful. Okay. That's, that, those are the sorts of things that we're, we're weeding out. Okay. Does this well have shallower reserve potential that you could, could tap at a, at a future time? Okay, then we can hang on to the well. But at the very least, we're going to suspend it. We're going to make sure that the stuff that's down deep is plugged off in a way that it can never come back to cause us trouble. Right, and I've seen some of the plugged wells that have done, that are done well, and you don't even know there was. Right. Right. 
And that's, that's, that's what you want. You want it to go away as if it's never been there before. Um, so you're doing the bonding. Another thing you brought up in that hearing was we have some increased oil production. Is that, or well, what, did we just stem the decline? Or? Well, Prudhoe Bay, um, <clears throat> it's got a lot of press, and I'm sure some of you have heard about it. Um, Janet Weiss, the president of BP Alaska, a year ago challenged her her whole organization to have zero decline at Prudhoe Bay in 2017. Did it Ken Thompson? She did a no decline in, in 2017. <laughs> and she said, if you guys do it, I'll shave my head. And if you, if you know Janet, you know she has beautiful um, mid-back length, dark brown hair. And um, she's got little nubs now because it's growing out. <laughs> she had to shave it off because they held no decline at, at Prudhoe last year. So that was nice. And, and the other big thing that's been happening is um, Hill Corp has bought a bunch of essentially everything in Cook Inlet, and then a lot of BP's assets on the North Slope, and has thrown a lot of money into getting into old broken wells and fixing them. And so they've turned the decline around in a lot of their fields. Do you, was, did you see that forecasted out beyond this year? Did we just do it this year? or did you I see haven't seen a forecast, but, you know, if, if you're an oil company, you make money on oil production, so I can't imagine that you just wanted to do this one year and then rest on your laurels. So I'm sure that Hillcorp, BP, Conoco, and all the other companies that are operating in the state are, are, are trying to increase their oil production, not decrease it. And I, I've stopped getting excited about projects until you get excited about projects. Is there one that you, you don't have to answer this, I can take it off, i just just curious. Is there projects out there that you think it might, you don't have to name them, but are they, there's the ones that we see, are they? There's some oil and gas prospects, that projects that look good. I'm, I'm, I remain excited about Conoco's work expanding what started out as their Alpine discovery and they're expanding it further west and now they're into the NPR. That's, that's really nice. Um, I'm excited about the new discovery that Armstrong made between um, Alpine and Kaparik. That, that looks like it's got huge potential. I um, am optimistic that the discovery that Kalis made out in Smith Bay will um, find its day. It's, it's, it's got some extra hurdles. It's, it's got the, um, some environmental hurdles of being offshore and some extra cost and logistic hurdles being offshore that the onshore projects don't have. So it, it will take longer to, and, and there's less information on that one. Um, I don't know how many years ago you testified, and it was to a TAPS, a special TAPS Senate committee hearing, and you were talking about natural gas and the process of using natural gas to extract more oil. Can you explain to me that process? Because I think people don't understand that that's what it's some natural gas is used sure. for. So um, one of the things that I've heard a lot over the years here in Alaska from from well-intentioned Alaska lovers <laughs> is um, they're warehousing our gas. We want our gas now. And the gas they're referring to is the gas that's in the gas cap at Prudhoe Bay and the gas that's at Point Thompson. And what most people don't realize is the gas at Prudhoe Bay 
Every single puff of it is being used right now and will be for the foreseeable future to get more oil out of the ground. And the second thing they don't realize is that except what's used up for fuel, that gas will still be there later to get. As long, you know, if you're using it to get more oil out of the ground, keep doing that. When it's done doing that, it can rest up and then you can use it. You don't even need to rest up. It's ready to go. So to say we want our gas now, that's like saying, I this, this goose just laid an egg, but I need another one, so I'm going to cut it open and take it out. It's essentially, <laughs> that's essentially what that statement means. Was that what you wanted? Is that what is that the explanation you were looking for? <laughs> yeah, and some, I I get excited about things like heavy oil and viscous oil. Are those, are those ever going to be economic? It depends on. Um, there's billions up there, there. There are there are billions of barrels of viscous and heavy oil up there that are currently uneconomic, and it depends on a couple of things. It depends on what technological advances occur. It depends on what happens with oil price. It depends on what happens with other um, energy sources, because it's not economical right now. And if 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 there continues to be an abundant supply of of oil and natural gas, then the price won't go up adequately to encourage the types of spending on research to move forward those technologies. So who knows? And if, if, if other energy sources become economical, then that adds to the competition and makes it even more difficult for, for an uneconomic, a currently uneconomic resource to compete. Well, I guess it has to be a, a delicate balance as a regulatory body and then Oh, this isn't regulations. This is just finance. I'm just, I'm just looking at how do we manage increasing oil production, inviting partners to the table for projects, and then you have regulatory and all these other issues that um, I remember hearing uh, the Admiral Tom Barrett, president of Alaska Pipeline, at one meeting saying that um, we're always going to have shale oil. This is going to be our competition, and there's a price point there. So. It's, it's, it's got to be hard to balance. Right. It, it's just going to be the, the cheapest plays, whatever's cheapest plays. And some of those places don't have an 800-mile pipeline infrastructure right. that has to be managed. Right. Well, anyway, thank you for meeting with me and visiting with Alaskans and letting us know about the Alaska Oil and Gas Conservation, and you're retiring this year? I have 304 and a half more days. But who's <laughs> counting? Well, thank you so much for your service to Alaskans. Thank you, Kathy. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and of course, thank you to Kathy Forrester. We couldn't have asked for a better person to kick off our show, someone who cares about Alaska as much as I do, and hopefully as much as you do. We have big things in the weeks to come, so please go to our Facebook page and tell your friends to find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. This is Deborah Berlini. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Talk soon. Alaska all the way, baby. <laughs>